The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife. Save the environment. Save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to another day in our wild world. For those of you who may just be tuning in for the first time, this is a program that provides up-to-date information and opinion on what's going on around the world where wildlife and people meet, the effects we are having on our wild world and our wildlife, and what is or is not being done about it, and what's working. Whether it's wolves, bison, coyotes in the U.S., elephant, rhino, and lions in Africa, or tigers in Asia and India, the other underlying issues are pretty similar. Our world has changed and is changing drastically, and in this current version, there seems to be less and less room for wildlife to do its thing. More pressure on wildlife and animals to provide benefit to us above all else, and the pressure to provide for an exponentially expanding human population, for we have found spectacular discoveries to eliminate many of the ills that used to kill us. Yet, more and more, where people and wildlife cross paths, it's not always that postcard picture or hallmark moment. It is where these disconnects lay that our wild world seeks to shine a light upon, opening the doors that will reconnect us to each other and to our earth. So, I say thank you today for listening, for we are all a part of our wild world. Over the past several episodes, well, the past year really, our wild world has covered a lot of territory about the good, the bad, and the ugly, the links between people, animals, and wildlife. We close in on the end of another year. We ponder how to find balance in a world that seems increasingly unbalanced. How do we strengthen the conduit that is being acknowledged between the human and the animal bond, the needs of our environment, our wildlife, and us? How is it all coming together? What's the big picture? So as we come into this holiday season of reflection and a new year of resolutions, today I'd like to discuss in, in an effort, discuss some issues in an effort to gain more and more attention and, uh, getting it out there to the public. Uh, most of the articles and discussions that I'm going to discuss today, you can find links to on our Facebook page, Wild Eyes at Facebook. It's also linked to Ellie Weiss at Facebook. And you can look at our website at www.wildeyes.org to find out what our projects are doing. And our projects are helped by you, your contributions, your financial input, and your care and your action. That's how we make it work, folks. So please uh, take a look at our website. And at this time of year, if you've got something to spare, we would certainly appreciate your contribution to our organization to keep our wild world. Let's take another look at the sentimental hallmark moment or natural history image gallery again. A lion yawning in the dewy golden sunset. The mother cheetah's success in her chase to provide dinner for her young family. A polar bear and her cubs playing as they come out of the den for the first time. Or the ubiquitous holiday cards with the reindeer pulling Santa's sleigh, the mule deer through the snowy mists and forests, the bunny rabbit and puppy in the pet store window looking for a home. 
Now, let's go across the malls of America to the grocery stores. From whole foods to no foods, but those based on chemical additives, fillers, and GMOs. We see all the hydroponic, commercially grown, look-alike vegetables, to the brightly imprinted labels on processed box mixers, to the wholesome animated likes of chicken, pork, and beef packaging. The farm and the homestead, the green grass and smiling faces of happy people and happy animals, all the marketing strategies we use to make profits and boost economies through utilizing animals and wildlife and to tell us all is well in Happy Valley. Nothing to worry about. We don't need food and nutrition labels and our government and big agro are looking out for us. But this isn't quite the case if we open the cover, dig behind the PR, and see what's really going on. We have concentrated animal feeding operations, otherwise known as CAFOs, or animal feedlots, where cows, pigs, sheep, or chickens have never seen a blade of grass, let alone the outside of a cage, or even be able to stand on its own two or four feet, where they have never eaten clean feed, given a nurturing word or touch, and are anything but happy in any sense of our definition of the word where it takes four-fifths of our world's grain and antibiotic supplies, where our forests are slashed and burned to feed these animals for slaughter to feed us, and the wastes bleed into our lands and oceans, and thus into the very web of life and our bodies and DNA. And that's just what we use for food that doesn't include wild meat or holistic and organically farmed animals the world's or the world's poverty-stricken populations must kill for sustenance and subsistence in hunting for meat and protein or the sport hunting of our wildlife for pleasure, thrill, and trophy or the illegal trafficking in wildlife and farmed animals for food, traditional medicines, and cultural rights whether it's deer, elk, dolphins, seals, bears, tigers, or lions. I presume you see where I'm going here today. I'm highlighting the varied and disconnected relationships we have to our food and to animals and the non-human beings we live with on this planet, of which there are many, many more in terms of numbers and species than there are of us. Yet somehow we still consider them as something other than us, something lesser than us, as we control their demise and their future at the same time. While on the one hand, we idolize them. We put them on a pedestal, praising their traits and qualities as the best that a human could hope to embody. Courage, stealth, motherhood, strength, agility, playfulness, beauty, nobility, power. And then we go that next step further. We kill them in any number of ways in hopes that by some magical means, we will absorb these qualities that we, as we aspire to by ingesting them, that we may possess their wildness as our own, or to hang their lifeless bodies on a wall to stroke our ego from winning a fight that was far from fair. By all definitions, I call this a disconnect. We'll cry over a sad dog movie or sigh in relief with The Animal Saves the Day. As we grow up, we have dogs and lions as role models and pass them on to our children through such films as Disney or the multitude of animated films anthropomorphizing them or laughing at their humorous ex escapades while trying to survive the Ice Age or discovering that wilderness really is a scary place and that they'd rather be back at the zoo and a laugh riot as they navigate their way like humans through the urban landscape to get back to their home. While we watch and feel connected to these unrealistic versions of the world around us, we sit by and watch the real thing fade away with barely a glance or a tear until it's too late. Extinction is forever. We hear this from every wildlife conservation organization, scientist, and peer-reviewed paper ever published. We are currently living in the sixth mass extinction, and our lifetimes since the endangered and in our lifetimes since the Endangered Species Act and various other animal welfare and protection laws and acts have been passed. We have documented 13 extinctions. The most recent, this past November, of the last western black white rhino winking off the face of the earth, like it suddenly just disappeared. Poof, gone. That's not what happened. It actually took over a century or so, but from too many of us, we just weren't listening. It wasn't important enough to make headlines or engage enough people. Or maybe it's just because it happened so slowly. 
We went from over one million black ry- Western black rhino at the beginning of the 20th century to zero. When you dig deeper, it has, was a few years before this was actually reported, when the last Western black rhino died because it took a while to confirm. Before that, there were only two known Western black rhino in the wild, but they hadn't been seen in a couple of years. Then those who cared to look could only find one. Explain to me, please, how a lone wild rhino could possibly have offspring when we knew there was not another rhino of its kind alive in the world, least of all, next to that rhino. When the rangers and the governments looked again, the last one was dead and gone, poached for its horn. When does it become important enough to grab our attention? One hundred years ago, there were 300 million elephants. Today, less than 300,000. Do you see the pattern here? And right now as I speak, 96 elephants a day are slaughtered. That's one every 15 minutes. We and our wildlife are facing the same situation. The only difference is there are more avenues, greater magnitudes of media on a scale far more diverse than 10 or 50 years ago. If you've been paying the least bit of attention, either through this program, through the newspapers, the internet, wildlife television, and natural history programming, you will know that the northern white rhino is on the very... The northern white rhino is on the very brink of its existence. The white and black rhino is slipping over the edge. Of the total rhino population of the world, including Asian and Indian one-horned, but excluding those in captivity in zoos, here are the statistics. At the beginning of the 20th century, there were 500,000 rhinos across Africa and Asia. By 1970s, their numbers dropped to 70,000 and now stand at a wobbly 29,000 in the wild and dropping. In 1963, due to large-scale poaching, the black rhino population dropped to a mere 2,300 individuals. And it's been only through intensive conservation, breeding programs, hunting bads, and tra- bans and trade restrictions did its population climb back at all to the current population of approximately 5,500. The southern white rhino conservation successes have brought that species back from a mere 50 individuals to around 20,000, but that includes private ownership, most of which are in South Africa, home to 75% of the total rhino population today, but where also Trophy hunting of the species is still permitted, along with elephant and many other species through the legal and illegal trade in wildlife, international trafficking by organized cartels. One difficult reconciliation of these numbers to understand in the state of rhino populations is due to private breeding farms in the U.S. and South Africa, reserves and sanctuaries and the private ranches. But here, too, there is much contention and divisiveness as regards the conservation success in keeping numbers up. But continued practices of trophy hunting and, of course, the poaching and trafficking trafficking cartels to provide the horn or other other wildlife parts to the Asian and international medicinal markets is taking a quiet and desperate toll. Despite the upsurge and successes in public awareness across the world and focus in Asia by many NGOs and governments, taking it to the governmental levels that highlighted the traditional cultural practices that are removing species altogether, uh, we're having a lot of success, but Asia is not alone. Here in the U.S. in the early 1900s, we nearly wiped out the bison herds of the Great Plains, the wolves from the lower 48, and the cougar from North America. And we continue to wage war on our apex predators and carnivores as pests and vermin over competition in favor of the deeply entrenched and revered meat-eating society and its resultant industrialization. That's the big picture. The smaller picture is a pack of a few wolves on public lands working to survive and find their natural play when the prey when there are so many domestic easy to catch animals at their disposal because of us. 
So, over the past year, our wild world has been bringing these issues to your attention through the various episodes, experts, guests, and dialogues. The increase in public awareness about the fate and state of our world's wildlife has certainly grown over the past five to ten years due to massive amounts of PR, documentary filmmaking, and scientific research, from broadcast, broadcast news to the various NGOs operating around the world. The downside of this is it doesn't seem to be translating into a difference in exponential scale of lives at stake. Something isn't working. We are still losing wildlife at unprecedented rates, and by all accounts, we will lose many more forever unless people take action to halt the process. Now I bring us back to that Hallmark card moment or the final chase scene of the lions killing a zebra or the cheetah licking her cubs or the sad dog on a PETA or HSUS poster on your television or your mobile device. What is the missing link here? The link between the notion that our pet animals are different than other wild animals, that somehow they are different and more deserving of our activism and kindness and fighting for their rights because of our relationship to them and their place in our everyday lives. We can feel for them because we recognize them as our own. From growing up with Rin Tin Tin, Lassie, Lion King, or Dog with a Blog, and the like. But unless you physically grew up with 4-H or on a ranch or spend time in the outdoors beyond hiking for recreation or are involved in small-scale livestock raising or farming, the average urbanite and suburbanite does not translate that warm, fuzzy feeling of the pet animal to cows, pigs, and chicken. They are food, but they are still animals. And there's that disconnect again. There is much movement today to re-engage the human relationship to our food, whether through organic, whole food, or humane treatment of large livestock in corporate farming, although I hesitate to even use that word, farming, as that is part of the PR problem. We see farm in our mind's eye as something wholesome and good, hardworking people providing for hardworking families, but that is not what industrialized farming is about. Let's pause here for a moment and define industrialization. This is the period of social and economic change that transformed us humans from an agrarian society of hunters and gatherers into an industrial one. The wider modernization process where social change and economic development were closely related with technological innovation, particularly with the development of large-scale energy and metallurgy production. Industrialization is the extensive organization of an economy for the purpose of manufacturing on large scales. Industrialization also introduces a form of philosophical change where people obtain a different attitude toward their perception of nature and a sociological process of ubiquitous rationalization. And by golly, we have most certainly accomplished that. So, on that note, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Be sure to call in, if you'd like, to uh, our uh, guest line at 1-866-472-5788, and follow us on Facebook, where all our links to today's articles and more are posted. And uh, you're welcome to send us an email today at wildize at wildeyes.org, and we can answer your questions. So we'll be right back. Stick with us. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. 
Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Many people are seeking to make a difference in the world, but few actually have the tools to do so. Every week, host Mary Beth Lodge and her guests will have you thinking forward and will give you the tips to keep your life, goals, priorities, and choices on track. The result is an easier, happier, and more inspired life. The name of the program is What Matters. Tune in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What really matters is the positive changes that you'll bring to your life and the world just by listening. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to Our Wild World. Welcome back. Stick with us, and I will let you know how this little bit of a history lesson about the industrialization of our world does lead to where we are today and where we can go from here. There is considerable literature on the factors facilitating industrial industrial modernization and enterprise development. Key factors factors have ranged from favorable political, legal environments for industry and commerce, abundant natural resources of various kinds, plentiful supplies of relatively low-cost, medium-skilled, unskilled, and adaptable excuse me, adaptable labor forces, even more so today due to the emigration of populations from outside. And by that, I mean from anywhere that has not yet reached this heightened level of industrialization and economies of scale. Whether due to war, corruption, widespread poverty, lack of marketable resources, geography, and any number of irrelevant factors, one thing stands true across the board. As industrial workers' incomes rise, markets for consumers' goods and services of all kind tend to expand and provide a further stimulus to industrial investment and economic growth. Thus, today, the lack of an industrial sector in any country can slow growth in a country's economy, so governments often encourage or enforce industrialization. On the other hand, the presence of industry in a country does not mean, in general, that it will bring wealth and prosperity to the people of that country, and furthermore, the presence of an industry in one country can make it more difficult for other countries to develop the same type of industry. Our modern-day industrialization happened slowly and insidiously between world wars and the advancement of the assembly line from making the tools of war, redesigning the way we travel, to gearing up to feed the peace and the multitudes. Then it really took hold in the 1980s when the shift in our cultural motto went from saving the world in the 60s to I want to get rich and bigger is better. So that's where we are today. If big is better, then really big translated to mean so much better because it could do so much more in less time and less money. But we forgot that it requires more energy and the costs involved in that footprint. Before the 80s and our advanced technology, we used to play games together. Now we play them alone. We used to have sit-ins. Now we have Facebook, but we also have one of the greatest tools ever introduced, the Internet, a saving grace and our dark underbelly. Now we're finding out that big is not always better and that thinking global and acting local might just save our lives and thus our earth. Going green is good, isn't it? 
yet we see the ever-increasing reports of the toll large-scale alternative energy farms is having on our natural systems and our wildlife. Solar farms burning birds and creating atmospheric heat sinks. Wind farms that cover hundreds of square miles are interfering with birds and terrestrial wildlife migratory routes. And why are these big-scale alternative energy plants always built near designated wildlife corridors or open space areas? Because we don't want to have to see them. Their scale and scope, a monument to our massive energy needs and the associated unintended and unanticipated side effects and costs. Out of sight, out of mind, and we can move merrily along. That's a disconnect. Okay, some industrialization has been a good thing, right? It has saved us so much time that supposedly we can now put toward enjoyment of the fruits of ours and others' labors. But when we begin to make our food and our lifestyles fit our mechanized processes to economize and utilize technological advances for an increasing global human population and to feed the less fortunate elsewhere, we also went about dehumanizing and distancing ourselves through the use of new and better machines." We've taken these processes farther and farther out of the watchful public by outsourcing or building bigger and centralized production facilities, run at a distance through multi-layered corporations, traded on the stock exchange, to animals being reduced, deferred, delegged, defaced, sterilized, and wrapped in clear plastic, stacked on the warehouse and big box store shelves. Where the cost and the toll on human and animal lives is far distant from the headquarters, stockholders, and consumers. Where the profit margins, bottom line, have become our definition of health and wealth. Through our industrialized farming practices, animals have gotten the short end of the stick as a result of speciesism. Let me define that. Speciesism is the assignment of different values, rights, or special consideration to individuals solely on the basis of their species membership, a prejudice similar to racism or sexism in that the treatment of individuals is predicated on group membership and morally irrelevant physical differences. The term usually refers to human speciesism or human supremacism to the exclusion of all non-human animals from the protections afforded to humans. It can also refer to the more general idea of assigning value to a being on the basis of species membership alone, involving human beings favoring rights for one species over others because of human-like similarities. Arguments against speciesism are contested on various grounds, including the position of some religions that human beings were created as superior and in status to other animals and we were awarded dominion over them, whether as owners or stewards. It is also argued that physical differences between humans and other species are indeed morally relevant and that to deny this is to engage in anthropomorphism or recognizing the importance of all human beings above all other species, thus species loyalty is justified. The cousin to speciesism is anthropocentrism, the belief that human beings are the central or most significant species on the planet, in the sense that we consider ourselves to have a moral status or higher value than that of other animals and other living beings, and sometimes even other people, which leads to the assessment of reality through an exclusively human perspective. Anthropocentrism is profoundly embedded in human in modern human cultures and conscious acts. It is a major concept in the field of the emerging fields of environmental ethics and environmental philosophy, where it is often considered to be the root cause of problems created by human interaction with the environment. However, many proponents of anthropocentrism anthropocentrism, point out that this is not necessarily the case and argue that a sound, long-term, anthropocentric view acknowledges that a healthy, sustainable environment is necessary for humans and the planet. Nonetheless, by tacit agreement or deceit, whether through ignorance or apathy, I think most of us today can agree that much of our industrialization has gotten way out of hand. From climate change effects 
climate change effects, mass farming, exploding populations, and widespread poverty, feeding the multitudes that in a misguided sense of preserving our humanity and sensibilities, we have in reality hidden the streamlined inhumanity of today's massively scaled killing processes. Whether it be war or by remote control to kill each other, or the industrialization of farm food animals and agriculture, it has gone behind closed curtains like the Wizard of Oz. And like the great and powerful, they keep secrets. Why? Because it is horrific. As long as we keep our eyes closed and turn away under the guise that it's not our job or responsibility and satiate ourselves in an overconsumptive lifestyle through cleverly manipulated advertising, it is so much easier for us to stomach and keep the disconnect alive and well. It is so much more comfortable not to dwell on the research data and facts that our food animals and non-human mammals and beings do have feelings. To disassociate ourselves by thinking that these beings are not alive in the same that we or our beloved pets are. That as individuals these animals' lives, from cradle to grave, are somehow not as important or as deserving of our conscious attention as another of our tribe, species, or the family pet to be treated humanely, that is, to be treated as we would wish to be treated, not to be harmed, not to fear, and to have shelter. I think that's written in some very old books and tablets of archaeological significance and spiritually relevant to many. As further unintended results of of this kind of unthinking and blind arrogance, we have relegated wild animals as something far, far other than us or our pets, a group that is even more distant from us of any similarity or qualities that we would define as personable or characteristic of having language and intelligence, culture and society, morals, ethics and emotion. That is, and until we meet one or two generalized stereotypes from Natural History Wildlife TV or Bambi and the Lion King. For once we acknowledge that animals make us human, then we must revisit a whole host of our behaviors, values and morals and ethical codes. And that is very uncomfortable indeed, as it will change how we do science, how we learn and what we teach. It will affect every aspect of our lives and our future and require sacrifices. And here we are at the holidays, our culture's extended celebration of the consumption of dead flesh. Our society's steadfast belief system and our government's support for and the global consequences of subsidizing factory farming and big agro and big pharma. As David Sirota wrote in his column, Eating Like There Is No Tomorrow, our diet of meat consumption is what he's referring to, has, quote, therefore become a microcosmic example of our willingness to risk self-destruction. But take a moment away from those leftovers to consider just two scientific realities. He continues, the first is catastrophic climate change. According to a report last year by two former World Bank experts, more than half of all carbon emissions come from livestock industry that supports the meat economy. Those emissions are related to everything from transportation to land use to excretion to petroleum based fertilizers that generate animal feed. The more meat our society consumes, the more these carbon emissions continue, the more we intensify climate change, and the more we imperil human survival on the planet. And as he continues, and I love this part, let's say though that you are one of those head-in-the-sand types who insists that climate change isn't happening or isn't anything to be concerned about. This, of course, is a convenient theology that self-servingly rationalizes a narcissistic aversion to any kind of sacrifice or lifestyle change. But, for argument's sake, maybe you reject all the environmental science and you genuinely either do not believe the climate is changing or you believe that the changes are inconsequential. Even then, I'm guessing you want life-saving medicine to continue being effective, right? If your answer is a yes, then we should take serious issue with how much meat our society consumes. 
As Sirota continues, FDA data proves that to produce enough meat for feed, to feed America's current demand, the livestock industry is now consuming a whopping four-fifths of all antibiotics used in a given year. According to the Centers for Disease Control, this overuse of antibiotics has played a huge role in creating lethal drug-resistant superbugs. That threatens to turn back the clock to the era before modern medicine. A post-antibiotic era means, in effect, an end to modern medicine as we know it, says Dr. Margaret Chan, the director of the World Health Organization. Things as common as strep throat or a child's scratched knee could once again kill. Some sophisticated interventions like hip replacement, organ transplants, cancer chemotherapy, and care of preterm infants would become far more difficult or even too dangerous to undertake. Various studies by the CDD, CDC and shown through the contributions you also provide to Wild Eyes to fund our grantees, our projects confirm that the resistance to antibiotics in wild animal populations distant from human habitation has increased and the recent epidemics from SARS to swine flu to H1N1, E. coli and other emerging superbugs already affect, afflict 2 million Americans a year and killing thousands. The crisis is here, and it's getting worse in large part because of our meat economy. Sirota ends his piece with, If your inner dialogue is telling you that vegetarianism, veganism is silly, and that the problems are overstated, and that a reduction in meat consumption is not necessary for our and our Earth's survival, what more can change your thinking? Does every steak need to be wrapped in a picture of destruction from a climate-intensified storm? Do we need labels on every turkey that shows the names of the people who died from superbug infections? If not, what is it going to take to finally make long-term human survival a bigger priority than gluttonous meat consumption? So, how do we know that we're evolving and that the paradigm is shifting? For decades and even more these days, there is a whole host of published peer-reviewed data and research that is warning us of our willful willful ignorance of the consequences of our large-scale destruction of our resources for meat production and big agro and big pharma. To inform and teach us to embrace and incorporate this vast array of research and data into our lifestyle, which includes not just as philosophy of morals and ethics, that our evaluation and treatment of other beings on earth will be the means to our own survival. Long-term data studies unequivocally provide the foundation of and for a wide variety of publications and social studies offered in universities around the world of the interconnectedness between humans and animals, linking wildlife, biodiversity, and human health along the same continuum. Just for example, there is T. Colin Campbell's work in both the China study and Whole, Rethinking the Science of Nutrition, to the studies by Michael Pollan, author of The Omnivore's Dilemma Dilemma and In Defense of Food, to Ethology with Mark Beckoff, Jane Goodall, Mark Goodall, Martin Keogh, and the Father of Modern Conservation, and the Concept of Stewardship, Aldo Leopold's Sand County Almanac. And there is an excellent piece by renowned author Paul Thoreau titled Africa's AIDS Mess. It's a worthy discussion of why the philanthropy of the super rich to Africa largely fails and what does work. To continue to deny these linkages, to deny our past in favor of a gluttonous and overconsumptive future that is setting the global stage that the Western model is the only model, is our ultimate arrogance and ignorance and will be our undoing as it is already undoing the planet. So, in the end, I think it's rather obvious where we need to be headed for our future, not just humanity, but life. The earth will survive us, but will we survive us? That's the question. So as you move on through the end of this year and into a new year, consider your choices and your impact on the planet around you. If that's too an amorphous com- uh, concept, then consider your children, your immediate health and lifespan, your loved ones, and even your pets. Some of our earthly species are obligate carnivores, and this is the way Earth was made. However, much of the recent data refutes that man must eat meat, that we 
are players in the greatest cover-up of all time, that the corporate line we've been fed is killing us and killing all the other living beings around us, too. We have a choice. We can vote with each consumer dollar we spend, this holiday and every day. By making personal choices and sharing these, we can and will shift our health to being our wealth and our wealth to being a healthy planet. There is a wave of change sweeping across the world, from recognizing our effects on our environment to acknowledging the damage we have done and the ways to mitigate it. We cannot avoid what is headed our way, but we can certainly stop doing those things we know, by all measures, are not working for us or the survival of other species and our world. And stick with me. I'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back, and thanks for sticking with us. Um, we're talking about choices and uh, what we can do, what we've been facing, how we got here, and where we can go. Um, I'm going to take a little excerpt from uh, the argu- ar- article I mentioned earlier, Paul Thoreau's Africa's AIDS Mess, and just give you a little highlight of what is going on and uh, that it is not always going to be huge sums of money uh, and free market enterprise and capitalism that will solve uh, the problems we are facing, whether it's Africa or elsewhere in emerging nations. And I quote from Mr. Thoreau, 
Never have so many people, so many agencies, so many stratagems, so much money been deployed to improve Africa. And yet the majority of the movers are are part-timers, merely dropping in, setting up a scheme in the much-mocked, the safari that does good manner, then returning to their real lives as hard-charging businessmen, Hollywood actors, benevolent billionaires, atoning ex-politicians, MacArthur geniuses, or rock stars in funny hats. It's not hard to imagine the future tombstones of the Clintons and Bono and Gates and many others bitten by the iliocinerary itch, that means the philanthropical itch, chiseled with the words telescopic philanthropist. The farther away the donors are, the shorter their visits. Chelsea Clinton took time out of her 10-day humanitarian trip in Africa to meet some of the kids that her AIDS work is benefiting. It seems the shorter their trip, the more passionate their feelings. I certainly encounter this uh, a lot during my 20 years in Africa. It does take long-term staying with a project. Conservation, as I've said many times, is not a short-term project. And I don't think uh, influencing and putting our capitalist, capitalist model onto emerging worlds is going to help save our, our planet and our wildlife. Never mind that Africa receives roughly $50 billion in aid annually from foreign governments and perhaps $13 billion more from private philanthropic institutions, according to Penta's estimate. Never mind that Angola's oil revenues are around $72 billion and Nigeria's $95 billion and that Africa boasts at least 55 verified and somewhat detached billionaires. Mr. Thoreau can testify that Africa is much worse off than when he first went there 50 years ago to teach English. There's more poor, there's more sick, there's more less educated, and it's more badly governed. It seems that much of the aid has made things worse. You can also find the book Dead Aid, where Dambisa Moyo agrees with this outlook. What we do want to say is that movements start from a ripple in the pond and spread, picking up momentum. We pine for simpler days, but who made them more complicated? We did. So we can go about making some things a bit less complicated, more open to scrutiny, and shine the light on cruelty wherever it may be. For cruelty and abuse cannot stand up under the spotlight. We see it all the time. Change stems from regular people like us deciding that something is wrong, that it is simply not right, morally, ethically, or spiritually. We do know that at our core, what values mean. The difference is now is that we are battling an insidious and supersized, multi-layered agendas behind all the special effects, adept and excellent in the art of camouflage and hype. It is difficult to find where the buck stops. However, history proves that when we take the time to dig a little deeper, make informed and conscientious choices, and acknowledge the effects of not doing so, and multiply this by the billions, then we'll have an idea of where we need to get to and where there is. When we stop putting the bucks in the fe- and feeding this in and feeding the system, then we will very quickly see the system change and find out who cares and how much public and political will can be arranged to reorient a marketplace where greed, green really is good, greed and free market enterprise may not be the answer to everything, and earth and animal and human friendly and sensitive products sell, and being healthy pays off in dividends. We have a choice. We can vote with each consumer dollar we spend this holiday and every day by making personal choices and sharing these. We can and will shift our health to being our wealth and our wealth to being a healthy planet. There is a wave of change sweeping across the world, from recognizing our effects on our environment to acknowledging the damage we have done and ways to mitigate it. We cannot avoid what is headed our way, but we can certainly stop doing those things that we know by all measures are not working for us or the survival of ourselves, our children, and other species in our world. 
Well, it looks like um, I'm a little ahead of myself today, and uh, I was wondering if there's any callers that would like to come in and uh, ask a question. It would be great to hear from you. Once again, I would urge you to follow us on Facebook, uh, where I post many links, many articles, and uh, a lot of information, both personal opinion and from a wide variety of sources, to educate and share the knowledge of what is going on. There is so much more information today that it's hard to keep up on what all is happening, especially if we narrow our focus to our own daily circle of our world, our family, our our pains, our ills, our um, issues, our uh, disagreements, and the things in our stresses. Uh, that's a, it's a pretty small worldview, but I understand that we are all busy. We have accelerated time. It's now uh, basically a given that we should fill each hour, each minute with so many more things to do. Uh, check our email go to the gym, drink our coffee, meet with our friends, catch up on our texting, catch up on our Facebook and our social profiles. It's almost impossible to do all of this and remain and retain a healthy, engaged, and connected lifestyle to our earth and our nature. So my request for you as we end this holiday and we head into a new year. 2013 has been a tough year for a lot of people, but it's that gives us an idea of what we can and what we should be doing as we head forward. We are meeting tipping points. We are in crises. We are at a place unprecedented in our living memory. Children today, 25 years, the generation, they don't even remember what it was like to be without a canned uh, soda, a computer, or a TV in every room. That the consumption that we see in the big box stores didn't even exist. We fought hard, our forefathers and our ancestors fought hard to give us a lifestyle that allows for our safety and our security. But we're letting that go in favor of bigger is better, more stuff is good, and we're not quite paying attention to the consequences these actions are having on our planet, but more so on us. So as we head into a new year and the end of this episode, I would like to say this is our wild world, and that being healthy and living a healthy lifestyle pays off in dividends. And where the wild things still are, and a lot closer and dependent on us and our decisions, than we previously ever knew or thought. So on that note, I wish you a wonderful holiday season. And step out into our wild world. Breathe the air, touch a tree, and remember that we still need this earth to live on. We have only one earth, and if we don't care, who will? So I wish you peace and health on earth, and thank you. This is Ellie Weiss. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.